I wanted to join the military since I was little. At first, I wanted to fly planes until I found out that you have to be good at math, so that didn't really happen. I thought maybe that there was something else I could do instead. The next year, my grandfather passed away and I saw his military funeral. I was set on the Army from then on. Flash forward to 9-11 and I was in eighth grade and had just been on top of the World Trade Center, not even a month beforehand. I knew from then on I wanted to fight in the Army. I believed in God during this time, but I did not have a relationship with him. Being the son of two pastors, I felt that he had taken enough of my time as is. My sole focus became joining the army and killing the enemy. God was nowhere to be seen in this plan, and I planned on keeping it that way. I graduated from high school in 2006, completed boot camp in Airborne, went to Rangers, but failed. My perfect record now tarnished. My whole military dream started free-falling into despair with no way out or option to reset. So I was sent to Fort Hood. The day I arrived at my unit, there was a drive-by shooting on base close to my barracks. We had to seek shelter in our rooms. Soon winter came and I got incredibly freezing. The winter storm knocked the power out in the barracks, forcing us to huddle in the joint bathroom under cold weather gear with scented candles as our only source of heat for three days. The unit we were attached to was still deployed. So rather than scramble everyone just for two months in country, they decided that we would stay put and deploy the next time. Once the rest of the unit got there, we were hazed for not being with them. The hazing made boot camp look like a summer vacation Bible school. And after this, extreme training commenced. We continued for almost 15 months. And for this time, we would spend weeks to months in the field. No soap, shower, running water, clean laundry, or bathroom. Whether blistering heat or freezing cold, we would be out there. All of this training to give us the tiniest glimpse of what it looks and feels like downrange. Finally got our orders, South Central Baghdad, home of the most wanted terrorist at the time. He was the top financer of insurgent activities for all of Iraq. Our base would make one hot meal a day and then throw it out two hours later. Our standard patrol time was 18 hours. The only thing we were able to eat was what family and friends sent and what bread we could buy on the streets. Every time one of those bags of delicious smelling bread came, however, it was a dance with the devil. The next sector over lost five guys because the mom strapped C4 to her kid's chest and told him to go get candy from the soldiers. We were just waiting for the same thing to happen to us. Death to me slowly faded from something you tried to avoid, tried not to think about, and pray that your time isn't up yet to something that I fought against, believing I was capable of actually wrestling the reaper and winning. After a while, however, I descended further into no longer fighting death or being afraid of death, but actually wishing to die. Balancing on the edge of letting something happen to me versus taking the step off myself was where I spent 90% of my deployment, waiting and wanting to die. But I didn't. I lost several brothers, but my life was spared. 
I spent much of that time after deployment trying to forget the past year. I dove headlong into the bars as I had turned 21 in Iraq. And man, did I hit them. I had the fraud department for my bank calling me because of the insanely high bar tabs. I spent all my deployment money on a car and alcohol. I thought I was happy with my life, but God has something much more intense planned. November 5th, 2009, Adel Malik Hassan killed 14 people, including an unborn daughter and wounded 30 others. I used to wish that I had done something. I thought maybe I could have rushed into the building, tried to tackle him, maybe get a knife or a pen. But I and 200 other combat infantrymen stayed hidden behind our unit building. All the while, hearing the screams, cries, and begging for help. And this year will be the 10 year anniversary. And the damage Hassan did is nothing compared to what veterans do to themselves. These are veterans who are so scarred, so shamed, so unforgiven that they commit the most tragic act of all and remove themselves from the people that love them the most. Well, good morning, Crossroads. My name is Josh Coger, the Shelby campus pastor. And if I can be honest with you, I just feel like we should just weep together for a little while. Uh, just the Memorial Day weekend, what it represents, the video we watched, the reality of loss uh, that many of you in this room have experienced. And not just that, but as Josh shares his testimony, we're so grateful that he did. Those who did come back, not always in one piece. And the experiences, the pain, the shame, the scars, the guilt that are experienced are I, un, unbelievable. I can't even uh, imagine. And that's what we're going to talk about today because it is true. Josh has experienced, many of you who are veterans have experienced that war is hell. But all of us, and not to diminish that, but all of us do experience shame. All of us do experience guilt. All of us do have these scars. And that's what we're going to talk about today, this morning. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John 1. 1 John 1, page 1021 in the Bible that's here back in front of you. If you flip all the way to the back of your Bible to Revelation and you start working your way backwards, you'll get Jude, 3 John, 2 John, boom. 1 John, 1 John 1, 5. We've been in a series called Empty. Uh, May is mental, mental Health Awareness Month, Mental Health Month, as you know. We've tackled and talked through issues like depression, anxiety, fear, and discouragement. And today we're going to round that out with scars, shame, and guilt. It's been my prayer as I've been preaching through this over in Shelby, as well as for us here at Park Ave, that three things would happen. The first, that is through this month, through this, this uh, sermon series, that one— we would start to break down the stigma of mental illness uh, holistically, but especially within the church. And when I first was kind of thinking about that and was talking with someone, I'm like, is there really a stigma? I, I, I don't know if there is. And I had a counselor friend 
as, as we're kind of discussing these sermons, and I was talking with him as a licensed counselor, and he's like, well, Josh, why don't you do this? Hypothetically, why don't you go to your congregation and tell them that you have cancer, and then, and not then as in later, but then pretend that you had to go and tell your congregation that you had clinical depression. Would there be a difference in reaction and response from your congregation? I was like, wow. There was a response within me of difference about myself. That, man, I'd rally around, I'd have compassion, I would, you know, whatnot for that pastor for myself who had cancer, but depression? Eh. The joy of the Lord is your strength? Did you read that verse, pastor? I don't know. Because uh, that's what we tend to do. We tend to make it just a spiritual issue. And while there is a spiritual issue and component to all of our life, because we're psychosomatic beings, suke, soul, soma, body, we're psychosomatic beings, there are things in our life like cancer in which the spiritual realm is not enough. It must be our foundation, but we might need chemotherapy. And same thing with mental health. The spiritual life should be our foundation, but we might need medication. We might need counseling. We might need therapies. And it's breaking down that stigma that it's not just a spiritual issue and you don't just need more faith, more prayer, etc. So I wanted to break down the stigma too. I wanted to encourage those of you in here who struggle with mental illness to keep the faith, to press on as you seek help, as you seek and wrestle in this battle. Because these are not mutually exclusive things. You either don't just have faith and, and then you don't struggle with mental illness. They're not exclusive. Many people, and as we were looking statistically over these last several weeks, about one in five struggle with depression. One in four-ish, five-ish struggle with anxiety. Start looking around the room, start counting off. That's a lot of people in this room alone, in this church. It is a real thing. It has real consequences. And I hope that if you are here and you struggle with these things, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, etc., that you can be encouraged to keep the faith, to walk humbly with your God, even if this battle lasts your entire life. Because for some of you, it might. It might not be something that you ever fully get out of, but you just have up and downs. But that doesn't change the internal hope that you have in Jesus, the gospel that declares eternal peace and a release from all pain and all suffering in Jesus. And then thirdly, I pray and hope that for those of you that do not struggle with mental illness, that you will have the resources, that you will be educated, that you will be able to be a source of encouragement and not a source of shame for those that do struggle. Because we as a body are to exhort, to encourage, to build up the body of Christ around us for God's glory, that the light that we shine to the world might be all the brighter. That is our job. So if you don't struggle with it, it is real. And we can be a source of encouragement or a source of shame. That's been my prayer, and I hope as we round that out, as we go forward in our lives, that you take some of those things with you. But what we're going to focus on today is shame and guilt. By a show of hands is always a good way to start. How many of you have experienced shame and guilt? Anybody? Some of you are too ashamed to say that you've experienced shame because you're still feeling shame. And that's, well, it's kind of supposed to be a joke, but it's also kind of, it is, it is the reality of what shame does. And by show of hands, I saw at least 90, 95% plus the 5% that are ashamed. Uh, it makes 100% of us that experience shame and guilt. It tells me that shame and guilt are natural things that we experience in our life, just like we've been talking about all series long. Having depressive thoughts is natural. Having anxious thoughts is natural. 
Having some fear is natural. Having some shame and guilt is natural. The problem becomes when we become enslaved in it. When we are enslaved to depression and we struggle with just a depressive state. When we're enslaved to anxiety, fear, and it controls us. And same thing with shame and scars. So everyone has experienced it because shame can be a good thing. And guilt can be a good thing. Let's talk about them for a little bit. What is shame? I should have started with that before I asked you if you've experienced it, but our modern conception of shame and guilt, there's a little bit of a difference. Shame primarily focuses on yourself, on who you are as a person. Guilt focuses on your action, and it's a feeling based on your action. So shame would say, I am a bad person. Guilt would say, I have done a bad thing. Shame will say, I am worthless. Guilt would say, I have done a worthless thing. So one is focusing more on who you are as a person. One is focusing on the action that you have done. A psychologist by the name of Dr. Joseph Burgo puts it this way in, in, uh, in a story. He writes, I once said something hurtful at a dinner party, and on some level, I intended it to be hurtful. Afterward, I felt guilty because I could see that I had hurt my friend. More painfully, I also felt ashamed that I was the sort of person who would behave that way. Guilt arose as a result of inflicting pain on someone else. I felt shame in relation to myself. So with this definition of shame and guilt, what I want to focus on today is ongoing shame and guilt. The ongoing understanding or feeling that you are worthless, that you aren't valuable, that you continue to make mistakes, that you can never make amends for it. That's a problem. That is not how God made us. Because shame can be a good thing. What is shame? What causes it? Where does it come from? Where does guilt come from? It comes from not matching up with a standard that has been placed upon you by society, culture, by your family, friends, people group, or by yourself. By yourself. You're not matching up to that standard that, that is on you. And so you'll feel a sense of shame or a sense of guilt for not matching that. For instance, an example of the ancient world in the first century uh, the Gentiles in the Greco-Roman world worshipped the emperor, treated him as if he were deity, if he were God. So then when the Gentiles started coming to Christ, they stopped doing that. Jesus said, oh, only I am Lord. And then all the non-believing Gentile friends were like, what are you doing? And they would ostracize them. They would judge them. They would speak harshly with them. They might not even allow them to buy from their store anymore. What was the point? To shame them, to get them to get back in line with the cultural norm, which was emperor worship. That's what shame does. That's what guilt does, is that you feel that way, so you will get in line, back in line with how things should be. Now, obviously, first century emperor worship, we do not believe to be good, so you shouldn't feel ashamed for not doing it. But if you murdered someone, I would hope that you would feel ashamed. I hope that you would feel guilty that I have just killed someone in cold blood. I mean, we should feel guilt and shame, excuse me but we don't need to live in them. The purpose of them is to project us back into and take us back into what is right and what is that standard that we are supposed to live towards. Another modern, uh, modern example that you may have seen, and this is probably behind the times, but I'm about five to 10 years behind the times myself, so it might not even be a trend anymore, but it's dog shaming on social media. I don't know if anyone has seen that. I'm not much of an animal person myself. Tried it out for 48 hours, didn't really work. Uh, it has a lot, I mean, dog is a lovely, loving family, everything worked out, but uh, nope. So, 
But I could see myself doing this. Uh, you know, you have this poor little mud sitting there just looking all sad, and there's a little sign around his neck that said, I pooped in the sandbox, or I peed on the carpet, or I can't stop eating dad's underwear, something like that. But what is the purpose of that? Is for them to feel badly about themselves that they would stop doing that action and be restored into right living, which didn't involve pooping in the sandbox and peeing on the carpet and whatnot. That is what shame and guilt can do, but sometimes we as believers get caught up in this ongoing shame and ongoing guilt. And if I can be honest with you, this has been one of the biggest struggles of my life and my walk with Christ. And I never really could pinpoint it until really diving into 1 John and diving into this study that this is what I struggle with, living with a sense of shame, a sense of guilt. I remember about six years ago, I was at a Bible study in Shelby, of all places, and I remember saying this phrase to, to, the, to the, um, the other men in the Bible study. I'm like, I wake up every morning feeling a million miles away from God. And all I think about as soon as I get up is all the mistakes I made the day before. And I just, what a, what a morning to wake up, right? Who needs folders when you have that? That's, that's pretty fun. You know, and it's like, that's not the way it's supposed to be, but that's shame. That's feeling that sense. And so I'll start putting up the walls. I start putting on the mask. I start putting on the facade. Hey, everything's great. The joy of the Lord is my strength, right? Just, but internally, all I'm thinking about is I'm unworthy. I'm worthless. I keep doing these things over and over again. And some of you who are believers experience that. You experience ongoing shame, ongoing guilt. And we are not to do that. But why do we sulk in it? Why do I sulk in it? Why do we put on the mask? Why do we put on the facade? Because we're afraid. We're afraid we're going to be rejected for who we are. We're afraid we're going to be ostracized, judged, like, oh, I thought you were a Christian. Oh, I thought you weren't supposed to do that. I know, that's why I feel shame. But we're afraid of that. And so we just dig the hole deeper and deeper. We build the walls more and more fortified that no one will get in while we put on the mask. And that is no way to live. That is not what God has called us to. Because what does shame do? What does shame do? We've talked about what it is. We've talked about what causes it. Now, what does it do? From my description and my understanding is that shame separates. That's our first point. Shame separates. And it separates us from two things. It, it divides. It separates us from reality and what do I mean by that? It separates us from reality. It may be true, it may be real that you, last night, looked at pornography. It may be true that you gossip. It may be true that you've lied, that you've stolen, that you've not worked as hard as you could have, that you're apathetic or lazy. All those things may be true, but the reality of who you are as a human being and who you are in Christ is not tied to those things. You see, what shame tells you is that you are worthless, that you won't amount to anything, that you just keep doing this, you keep digging this hole farther and farther, that the Lord doesn't love you, and guilt, that you can never really make amends for it. You'll never be able to make up for what you've done. And it separates us from reality, but that doesn't usurp or take the place of who you are as a human being. We were made in the image of God. We have inherent dignity. We have inherent value. We have inherent worth because of that. Every person, believers and unbelievers, no matter, no amount of sin, can, it can tarnish that image, but it will never completely remove the fact that you were made in God's image. So shame tells us, that doesn't matter, you're worthless. 
and that separates us from reality. The second thing that it separates us from is from God. It separates us from God. Now, what do I mean by that? Usually it's kind of our, our catchphrase, not really a catchphrase, but a technical phrase that we use that sin has separated us from God. But now I'm saying shame has. Well, what do I mean? Sin has had, Jesus came, paid the price for all sin of all time and has restored that relationship or given the potential for restoration for believers and for unbelievers to become believers. That is final, that has happened. But what I'm talking about is experientially. That shame experientially separates us from God. That shame, the shame that I experienced when I woke up in the morning, I felt separated from God. I felt I can't approach him, I can't, I'm too unworthy, I am too worthless in my sin because I keep doing the same things over and over again. And that's not true. That is not true. Because God, as believers, is always with us. The Spirit indwells us. We have His presence constantly, but we might not experience it based on the sin that we're living in, the shame, the guilt that we're living in. Both of these are a problem. Because God didn't redeem us, His children, that we would feel ashamed to go into His presence. Christ didn't die on the cross and rise from the dead for us to feel worthless. So any of you feel that way? Any of you struggled with ongoing shame, ongoing guilt? Maybe it's because of your service to our country like Josh that he has battled. Because for me, what it was, I experienced freedom. I experienced joy as soon as I came to Christ. It was great. Never experienced anything like it. And then over time, that didn't necessarily fade but the old habits started creeping in again. The old sins. And I started saying, whoa, where did this come from? I'm, I've got the Spirit now. I shouldn't be doing this. I'm a new creation now because of Christ. Why would I do this? And I would live in that. And some of you might be living in that right now. But is there hope? Is there an answer? I assume you didn't come this morning and sit in these seats to hear no, and you would be right. There is an answer. And some first John, we're gonna read about it. Pick up with me, first John 1, 5. We're gonna start and read it into chapter two. Follow along with me. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ, or Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
we'll stop right there. John's talking to first century believers in modern day Turkey, and he's trying to encourage them and kind of fix some doctrinal errors. There was some, some heresy, some false doctrine going on pervading the community, and he's writing to tell them, hey, I was there. I touched Jesus. I know who he is. This is the truth. This is the message, and he's combating. If you follow the argument and follow some of the things he says, it kind of lines up with some people saying Jesus never physically existed, and we're talking 60-some years, roughly, after Jesus died. That's enough time to maybe think, well, did he really, did he really walk this earth? And so John's like, I was there. I touched him. Believe me. I know this message. And what is the message that John says? He says, the message we have heard is that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. He sets up this contrast. He does it in his gospel. He does it in these letters. There are two paths. There's two ways of living. You're either in the light or you're in the dark. In this passage specifically, I don't believe he's talking about unbelievers and believers. I think he's talking about believers. That you're either walking in the light as God is in the light, or you're walking in darkness as God is in the, or as God is not in the darkness without God. Unconfessed, ongoing sin in a believer's life is darkness. Shame, ongoing shame, guilt, the walls built up, that is darkness. That is not the light. That is not how God has designed us to live. That is not what we were made for. It's not what we were redeemed for. So John is saying there's light and there's darkness. Here's how you'll know if you're walking in the light or in the darkness. He kind of talks about the belief of Jesus. He talks about walking as he walked. But how do we go from darkness to light? How are we released from the shame, from the scars, from the guilt, and get back into the light of life that Jesus is with him? One word. It's probably a word that you're familiar with because it's on your programs of the title of the sermon, Forgiveness. It's forgiveness. Now, that seems all well and good. That seems easy enough. I've heard forgiveness for a long time. I grew up in church, but yet I'm still the one that had struggled with it. So let's unpack forgiveness a little bit because it's how we go from the darkness to the light. Why? Because forgiveness restores. Forgiveness restores restores. And this is one of the arguments that John is making, walking in fellowship with him in verse 9 that we're going to unpack, that forgiveness restores. And it restores two things. The first thing it does is it restores a relationship. It restores a relationship. That's why Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again, was to restore a relationship of humanity to God. And that is final. That is final. It cannot be undone. Jesus declared, it is finished from the grave. There's no amount of sin. There's no amount of shame, no amount of guilt, no amount of depression, anxiety that could ever take that relationship away because it is in Jesus' blood and confirmed through his resurrection. And of all of you who have believed in Jesus, turned from sin and believed in him, your relationship has been restored but sometimes we confuse this with the second thing that forgiveness restores. And that was my problem. When I would wake up, I would think and experience that the relationship had been, had been cut off because of my sin as a child of God. But forgiveness also restores something else. It restores fellowship. That's our second point. Forgiveness restores fellowship. And this is an ongoing process. 
it is so key, so important that we understand this in relation to God, is that his forgiveness as a believer, as we seek it, restores our fellowship with him. To put it another way, everyone in here is either a parent or a child. And some of you, depending on parenting styles, I'm assuming at some point in time, use the timeout method. So your child disobeys, you send them to their room to time out, you shut the door, what have you done? You've removed fellowship. You've separated them from you, hoping that they'll experience a sense of shame, a sense of guilt for the wrong that they've done. And then you'll go into the room, hoping they feel remorse. They'll say, I'm sorry. And then you will say, I forgive you. And they come out of the room and what? The fellowship is restored. Did the relationship between you and that child ever waver? Was it ever in jeopardy? Was there at any point when that child, you shut that door, not my child now. I'm sure some of us wish that, but that's not how it works. That relationship was never in jeopardy, but the fellowship is. And when we're walking in darkness, when we're walking in shame and guilt, in sin, in darkness, the fellowship with God isn't there. And that's what John says. If we walk in the light, as he in the light, we have fellowship with him. But if we walk in the dark, we do not. We're lying. We have the mask. We have the facade. We're not walking with him. And that's what I fear that some of us don't get when we build that, that wall, that that forgiveness can't restore the fellowship, that the shame, the guilt, the sense of despair, the sin that you keep doing, that that completely separates and that's not true. How does God do it? How does he forgive? Well, let's look at the, the verb in verse 9 where John says to forgive. The verb is, is afiemi, afiemi, and it's a legal or a moral type word. It's used in uh, contractual uh, Greek literature. It's used in, of divorce. Uh, it's a release. It is a release. So if you're in contract with someone, it's a releasing of obligation from both parties. Uh, in marriage, divorce, it is a release of covenant commitment and contractual to one another. And our forgiveness from God, both relationship, restoration as well as fellowship, is founded in that forgiveness. It is a release of what we are due. It's a release of the obligation. You cannot repay what you're owed. And that's the point Jesus did, that God could release the obligation on us and restore us to relationship, restore us to fellowship. So if that's what forgiveness does, how do we obtain it? How do we obtain this forgiveness? If we want to go from darkness to light, if we want to be restored to fellowship, well, what does John say in verse nine? If we confess, if we confess our sins, forgiveness follows confession. Forgiveness follows confession. Now, when I say confession, what do I mean? Do I mean that we need to have a couple of boxes up here? I'll sit in one. You come in here, pour out all of the sins of your life. Do you have to, should we break up in small groups? Not necessarily. Because the word for confess, the word to confess in the Greek is homologeo. Homologeo. And it's just a concession that something is factual or true. It's a concession. Do you have to verbalize a concession that you concede something is true? No, not necessarily. But confession does require humility. It does require humility. Humility 
and you have to concede two things. One, you have to concede that you actually have sinned or that you are living in sin, which normally for those of us that experience shame, that's not a problem. We feel, we, well, we know that we sin, but it's also a concession, a confession, a belief, a humility, and a belief that God will forgive, that God will forgive. It, forgiveness follows a confession. Because like I said, every morning, oh, I was more than well aware of my sin, but I didn't make that transition of believing God would forgive me for that. We have to believe that. We have to believe that. Now, back real quick before we move on, but the confession to one another, while it's not required, there is power in it. There is power in it. It was a couple of years ago, I had, I had wronged my wife, and then she was unaware of it. And I lived internally with this shame for months. And I just felt so terrible on myself that I would be that kind of person, that kind of husband that would do such a thing. And I'm also a pessimist and a worst case scenario guy. I'm a real joy to hang out with. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, but I'm like, oh, she's gonna divorce me. She's gonna leave me. Afiemi, uh, if you will. And I just, I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell. I was just so fearful of rejection, so fearful of how she'd handle it. And then I got an exhortation and accountability from uh, a brother in Christ that said, you are going to confess because it's the right thing to do and you owe that to her because you've wronged her. And I'm like, Ugh. So I went to her, completely scared. And she, walking in the light, received me, received my confession with grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. Because as she was walking in the light, the love of God, I think this is one aspect of what John's talking about, the love of God is perfected in those that walk in the light. And as the love of God is perfected in us, the love of God exudes from us. And we're able to show that love to others. And I was so afraid of rejection, but I had no need to be. Because she was in the light and she understood my weakness. Did it hurt? Of course. But did it separate our relationship? No, it restored us to fellowship. We both felt freedom and joy in our relationship. And that's the power of confession because there's one thing to concede something to God and you know he's there, but you still feel that shame towards others. But when you confess it to someone and you put yourself on the line to potentially be humiliated, to be rejected, and they meet you with that love, it's a tangible expression of the love of God. And it's powerful. So you don't need to confess verbally to others if you're struggling with this, but I would strongly encourage you. I would strongly encourage you. Now, we might then say, in our confession, we might not believe, we, not, might, we might not concede the fact that we believe God will forgive us, but that's because we forget. What is God's forgiveness rooted in? I often think that it's in my behavior, that God's forgiveness is rooted in my behavior, but that's not what John says. In verse 9, he says, forgiveness, in essence, is rooted in God's character and Jesus' sacrifice. That is what true forgiveness of relationship and fellowship is rooted in. There's no amount of sin that we could do that would make us unforgivable. Because it's not about us. If we confess our sins, what does John say? He is what? Faithful and just. Or some translations might say righteous, the same word. He is faithful and just. He's faithful to his word. He has promised forgiveness in sending the Son to be a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. We just celebrated and reflected on that with communion. But he's also just in allowing us to be forgiven because Jesus paid it all. 
He can look on us and he can release us from the obligation because it's been satisfied in Christ. Forgiveness is not rooted in us. Forgiveness is not dependent upon us. It is rooted in God's character and it is rooted in Jesus's sacrifice if we confess. But not only does he forgive us of our sins, he goes one step further. And John says, and he does what? He cleanses us from all, from every unrighteousness. This word for, for cleanse, katharizo, in the Greek is, is to make clean, to purify. It's steeped in Old Testament Levitical law. To go to the temple, to worship at the temple, you had to become ceremonially clean in order to worship, to go to God. And what is John saying? You have been clean. You've been made clean. Cleansed of everything. You've been forgiven of the stuff you know you do and you concede to, but also even the sins that you aren't even aware of. You're completely cleansed. Because of Jesus, you can go to the Father. Be restored to fellowship. We are forgiven of what we know we do and what we don't know if we simply confess our sins to him. It's amazing. And John, then in chapter 2, says, I write all this that you wouldn't sin. I mean, I hope that you don't sin. We don't want to be about sin as believers. But if you do, but if you do, so what is he assuming? <laughs> that we will. That we, as we still have this flesh, as we still battle throughout life, we still will sin. And so what does he say? We have an advocate. Now, as we are in Jesus, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a mediator. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to have an advocate? Well, how good is that advocate? It depends on how you define your advocate. Here's our advocate. He's the Christ, which means he's the Messiah. He was the anointed one sent from heaven to redeem his people. Secondly, he's righteous. He's the righteous, the righteous one, perfect, without sin. And he is the propitiation, which is a fancy word that I've never seen outside of the New Testament, an atoning sacrifice. He has stayed the hand of wrath of God for us. That's our advocate. I don't know if you can get much better than that. The one sent from God, the one who lived a perfect life, and the one who stayed the hand of wrath, satisfied it on our behalf. That is who is interceding on our behalf. When we confess, when we sin, we have an advocate. Jesus says, look at me. I have paid for this sin of this child. Restore him to fellowship. He's interceding. He's a help on our behalf. That is who we have. Although we can experience guilt and shame, we must, and I encourage, exhort you, and exhort myself, we must believe that forgiveness is possible and that that forgiveness restores our fellowship. That though we may experience guilt and shame, and that's a good thing, to lead us back to Jesus, it does not separate us. It should lead us to our advocate, to our intercessor, to be restored back to him. And once we are, once we go from that darkness to light, then John doesn't end with that. He says, well, now, remember, how should you be walking? Because forgiveness, true forgiveness, understood, believed, and experienced, propels us to obedience. True forgiveness propels us to obedience. And that's what he says in verses 3 through 6. He's talking about walking with him. If we say we know him, if we say we walk in the light, well, then what should we be doing? We should be obeying his commandments. If we say we abide in him, what should we be doing? We should be walking as he walked. What did Jesus command, and how did he live? What did Jesus command? Love God and love others. Love God and love others. 
Almost too simplistic, but it'll take you a whole lifetime to figure out how to do that. And how did Jesus walk in perfect obedience to the Father, to that commandment to love God and love others? If we are in the light, we've experienced freedom. If we've experienced forgiveness, we are going to walk in the light. We are going to obey. If you struggle with those scars, struggle with that shame, struggle with that guilt, there is hope. And it's found in the forgiveness of God through Christ to restore relationship and to restore fellowship if we would confess, concede that we have sinned, concede that he is faithful and just to forgive us. Now let's turn back to Josh's testimony. See, how did he handle his scars, his shame, and his guilt? There have been several times where, not for the grace of God, I would have been one of the veterans that took their own life. 22 a day is currently the amount of veterans that take their own life. I am redeemed, I am forgiven, and as hard as it is to accept, my deeds are not stronger than him. His light overwhelms my darkness. He delights in me, even when no one else, even myself, does not. I have been on a path for over 20 years to be able to not only say this, but believe it. God saved me, and he used three tools to do so. My incredible, beautiful, kind, intelligent, and driven wife, my dad, and Reboot Recovery. I now look back on what God has brought me through, and it still scares me sometimes. However, I know that the greater the trauma, the greater the wound. The greater the wound, the greater the healing. The greater the healing, the greater the message that we can share with others. Everything in our lives points toward God, whether we realize it or want it to or not. Reboot focuses on the critical aspect of forgiveness, and we need your help to reach the unreachable. I wrote this with a heavy heart on April 29th, when I had just been informed that a veteran committed suicide outside the VA Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio. For God's hurting children, I ask for your help in combating the enemy that has built strongholds in every veteran's mind and heart. powerful testimony of what Josh experienced, the forgiveness. I want to strongly encourage you if you are a vet and you struggle with those scars, the shame, forgiveness, reboot is happening in August. There's signups out there. Josh and his wife are there to talk with you about that. But there are three types of people in this room right now. There's the ones like me that are believers that struggle with the ongoing shame, ongoing guilt. Second, there are unbelievers in here that have never believed upon Jesus that also struggle with shame and guilt because you realize there's an objective standard that you're not meeting up with in your life no matter how hard you try. You're not making it work. You feel that weight of shame and guilt. And then thirdly, there's those of you who are walking in the light. You have experienced God's forgiveness. You are in fellowship with him. I want to challenge and speak to all three of you, the first ones. 
I've been saying it the whole time, seek forgiveness. If you struggle with that, you've been redeemed. I'm preaching to myself, I'm preaching to you. There's no shame. There's no ongoing necessary, there's no necessity of guilt. We have an advocate, seek that. If you need encouragement, if you need prayer, find a pastor, go to next steps. Within your community group, find someone that you trust that you can confess, break down the walls, take off the mask. It is no way to live, I know. I know there's forgiveness, there's restoration. For those of you that don't know Jesus, there's still time. He can still be found. He can give you the freedom. He can give you the joy, the love, the peace that your heart craves. <laughs> but beware, once you come to Christ, don't be the first group. Continue in that forgiveness. Walk in that. And lastly, people that are walking in the light, praise God. Now let me challenge you, reflect on yourself. Are you an approachable person? Are you walking in the light? Would you be able to help encourage and love a brother or sister that comes up to you after the service and says, yeah, I just watched porn and I'm addicted to it. I've had an affair. I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. I have depression. How would you respond? Would you add shame to them by your response, your reaction, your removal from them? Or would you allow the love of God to be perfected in you and exude to them? Because if they're coming to you, we already feel the shame. We don't need you to heap it on to us. But would you show that love? Let us pray for all of those in this room. God, I thank you that we can have freedom, that we can have joy, that we can have a restored relationship with you through Jesus Christ, who is our advocate. But we can also experience ongoing fellowship and restoration of that because of our advocate because of the gospel. God, help us believe it. For those of you and for those, Father, who are in the first two categories, God, change their hearts, draw them closer to you. May we understand more deeply the forgiveness that is rooted in you and not in us, and that it's available. It's based in your character. Help us believe. Break down these walls. Break down these masks. That, Lord, we would grow and we would walk in the light as you are in the light, that we would have freedom, that we would experience joy, and that we collectively as a body would shine the light of the world, that others would come to know you. God, for those who are in the light, those who experience freedom, praise you, God. May they reflect, may they change their heart, may they be approachable, may your love exude through them to those who are struggling. God, we were not made for shame, we're not made for ongoing guilt. That is not from you. That is from our enemy. Protect us, Lord. Grow us in your character. Grow us in your love and our understanding of you. May we believe it. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.